The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 28 Happiness and misery rather the result of prudence than of virtue in this life. Temporal evils or felicities being regarded by heaven as things merely in themselves trifling and unworthy its care in the distribution. I had now been confined more than a fortnight, but had not since my arrival been visited by my dear Olivia, and I greatly longed to see her. Having communicated my wishes to my wife, the next morning the poor girl entered my apartment, leaning on her sister's arm. The change which I saw in her countenance struck me. The numberless graces that once resided there were now fled, and the hand of death seemed to have moulded every feature to alarm me. Her temples were sunk, her forehead was tense, and a fatal paleness sat upon her cheek. "'I'm glad to see thee, my dear,' cried I. "'But why this dejection, Livy? I hope, my love, you have too great a regard for me to permit disappointment thus to undermine a life which I prize as my own. Be cheerful, child, and we yet may see happier days.' "'You have ever, sir,' replied she, "'been kind to me.' and it adds to my pain that I shall never have an opportunity of sharing that happiness you promise. Happiness, I fear, is no longer reserved for me here, and I long to be rid of a place where I have only found distress. Indeed, sir, I wish you would make a proper submission to Mr. Thornhill. It may in some measure induce him to pity you, and it will give me relief in dying." Never, child, replied I, never will I be brought to acknowledge my daughter a prostitute. For though the world may look upon your offence with scorn, let it be mine to regard it as a mark of credulity, not of guilt. My dear, I am no way miserable in this place, however dismal it may seem. And be assured that while you continue to bless me by living, he shall never have my consent to make you more wretched by marrying another. After the departure of my daughter, my fellow-prisoner, who was by at this interview, sensibly enough expostulated upon my obstinacy in refusing a submission which promised to give me freedom. He observed that the rest of my family was not to be sacrificed to the peace of one child alone, and she the only one who had offended me. Beside, added he, I don't know if it be just thus to obstruct the union of man and wife, which you do at present, by refusing to consent to a match which you cannot hinder but may render unhappy. "'Sir,' replied I, "'you are acquainted with the man that oppresses us. "'I am very sensible that no submission I can make "'could procure me liberty even for an hour. "'I am told that even in this very room a debtor of his, "'no later than last year, died for want. "'But though my submission and approbation could transfer me from hence "'to the most beautiful apartment he is possessed of, "'yet I would grant neither, "'as something whispers me that it would be giving a sanction to adultery.' While my daughter lives, no other marriage of his shall ever be legal in my eye. Were she removed, indeed, I should be the basest of men from any resentment of my own to attempt putting asunder those who wish for an union. No, villain as he is, I should then wish him married, to prevent the consequences of his future debaucheries. But now should I not be the most cruel of all fathers to sign an instrument which must deny my child to the grave, merely to avoid a prison myself? and thus to escape one pang, break my child's heart with a thousand? He acquiesced in the justice of this answer, but could not avoid observing that he feared my daughter's life was already too much wasted to keep me long a prisoner. 
However, continued he, though you refuse to submit to the nephew, I hope you have no objections to laying your case before the uncle, who has the first character in the kingdom for everything that is just and good. I would advise you to send him a letter by the post, intimating all his nephew's ill usage, and my life for it that in three days you shall have an answer. I thanked him for the hint, and instantly set about complying. But I wanted paper, and, unluckily, all our money had been laid out that morning in provisions. However, he supplied me. For the three ensuing days I was in a state of anxiety, to know what reception my letter might meet with. But, in the meantime, was frequently solicited by my wife to submit to any conditions rather than remain here and every hour received repeated accounts of the decline of my daughter's health. The third day and the fourth arrived, but I received no answer to my letter. The complaints of a stranger against a favourite nephew were no way likely to succeed, so that these hopes soon vanished like all my former. My mind, however, still supported itself through confinement, and bad air began to make a visible alteration in my health and my arm that had suffered in the fire grew worse. My children, however, sat by me, and while I was stretched on my straw, read to me by turns, or listened and wept at my instructions. But my daughter's health declined faster than mine. Every message from her contributed to increase my apprehensions and pain. The fifth morning, after I had written the letter which was sent to Sir William Thornhill, I was alarmed with an account that she was speechless. Now it was that confinement was truly painful to me. My soul was bursting from its prison to be near the pillow of my child, to comfort, to strengthen her, to receive her last wishes, and teach her soul the way to heaven. Another account came. She was expiring, and yet I was debarred the small comfort of weeping by her. My fellow prisoner, some time after, came with the last account. He bade me be patient. She was dead. The next morning he returned, and found me with my two little ones, now my only companions, who were using all their innocent efforts to comfort me. They entreated to read to me, and bade me not to cry, for I was now too old to weep. "'And is not my sister an angel now, papa?' cried the eldest. "'And why, then, are you sorry for her? I wish I were an angel out of this frightful place if my papa were with me.' "'Yes,' added my youngest darling, "'heaven, where my sister is, is a finer place than this, "'and there are none but good people there, "'and the people here are very bad.' "'Mr. Jenkinson interrupted their harmless prattle "'by observing that now my daughter was no more, "'I should seriously think of the rest of my family "'and attempt to save my own life, "'which was every day declining, "'for want of necessary and wholesome air. "'He added that it was now incumbent upon me to sacrifice any pride or resentment of my own to the welfare of those who depended on me for support, and that I was now, both by reason and justice, obliged to try to reconcile my landlord. "'Heaven be praised,' replied I, "'there is no pride left me now. I should detest my own heart if I saw either pride or resentment lurking here. On the contrary, as my oppressor has been once my parishioner, I hope one day to present him up an unpolluted soul at the eternal tribunal. No, sir, I have no resentment now, and though he has taken from me what I held dearer than all his treasures, though he has wrung my heart, for I am sick almost to fainting, very sick, my fellow-prisoner, yet that shall never inspire me with vengeance. 
I am now willing to approve his marriage, and if this submission can do him any pleasure, let him know that if I have done him any injury, I am sorry for it. Mr. Jenkinson took pen and ink and wrote down my submission nearly as I had expressed it, to which I signed my name. My son was employed to carry the letter to Mr. Thornhill, who was then at his seat in the country. He went and in about six hours returned with a verbal answer. He had some difficulty, he said, to get a sight of his landlord, as the servants were insolent and suspicious, but he accidentally saw him as he was going out upon business, preparing for his marriage, which was to be in three days. He continued to inform us that he stepped up in the humblest manner and delivered the letter, which, when Mr. Thornhill had read, he said that all our submission was now too late and unnecessary that he had heard of our application to his uncle, which met with the contempt it deserved, and, as for the rest, that all future applications should be directed to his attorney, not to him. He observed, however, that as he had a very good opinion of the discretion of the two young ladies, they might have been the most agreeable intercessors. "'Well, sir,' I said to my fellow prisoner, "'you now discover the temper of the man that oppresses me. He can at once be facetious and cruel.' but let him use me as he will. I shall soon be free, in spite of all his bolts to restrain me. I am now drawing towards an abode that looks brighter as I approach it. This expectation cheers my afflictions, and though I leave an helpless family of orphans behind me, yet they will not be utterly forsaken. Some friend, perhaps, will be found to assist them for the sake of their poor father, and some may charitably relieve them for the sake of their heavenly father. Just as I spoke, my wife, whom I had not seen that day before, appeared with looks of terror, and making efforts but unable to speak. "'Why, my love,' cried I, "'why will you thus increase my afflictions by your own? What, though no submissions can turn our severe mister, though he has doomed me to die in this place of wretchedness, and though we have lost a darling child, yet still you will find comfort in your other children when I shall be no more?' "'We have indeed lost,' returned she. "'A darling child, my Sophia, my dearest, is gone, "'snatched from us, carried off by ruffians.' "'How, madam?' cried my fellow-prisoner. "'Miss Sophia, carried off by villains, sure it cannot be.' "'She could only answer with a fixed look and a flood of tears. "'But one of the prisoner's wives, who was present and came in with her, "'gave us a more distinct account. "'She informed us that, as my wife, my daughter, and herself were taking a walk together on the great road a little way out of the village, a post-chaise and pair drove up to them, and instantly stopped, upon which a well-dressed man, but not Mr. Thornhill, stepping out, clasped my daughter round the waist, and, forcing her in, bid the postillion drive on, so that they were out of sight in a moment. "'Now,' cried I, "'the sum of misery is made up.' nor is it in the power of anything on earth to give me another pang. What? Not one left. Not to leave me one. The monster, the child that was next my heart. She had the beauty of an angel, and almost the wisdom of an angel. But support that woman, nor let her fall. Not to leave me one. Alas, my husband, said my wife, you seem to want comfort even more than I. Our distresses are great, but I could bear this and more if I saw you but easy. They may take away my children and all the world if they leave me but you. My son, who was present, endeavoured to moderate our grief. He bade us take comfort, for he hoped that we might still have reason to be thankful. My child, cried I, 
Look round the world and see if there be any happiness left me now. Is not every ray of comfort shut out, while all our bright prospects only lie beyond the grave? My dear father, returned he, I hope there is still something that will give you an interval of satisfaction, for I have a letter from my brother George. What of him, child? interrupted I. Does he know our misery? I hope my boy is exempt from any part of what his wretched family suffers. Yes, sir, returned he, is perfectly gay, cheerful, and happy. His letter brings nothing but good news. He is the favourite of his colonel, who promises to procure him the very next lieutenancy that becomes vacant. And are you sure of all this? cried my wife. Are you sure that nothing ill has befallen my boy? Nothing, indeed, madam, returned my son. You shall see the letter, which will give you the highest pleasure. And if anything can procure you comfort, I am sure that will. But are you sure, still repeated she, that the letter is from himself, and that he is really so happy? Yes, madam, replied he, it is certainly his, and he will one day be the credit and support of our family. Then I thank Providence, cried she, that my last letter to him has miscarried. Yes, my dear, continued she, turning to me, I will now confess that though the hand of heaven is sore upon us in other instances, it has been favourable here. By the last letter I wrote, my son, which was in the bitterness of anger, I desired him upon his mother's blessing, and if he had the heart of a man, to see justice done his father and sister, and avenge our cause. But thanks be to him that directs all things, it has miscarried, and I am at rest. Woman, cried I, thou hast done very ill, and at another time my reproaches might have been more severe. Oh, what a tremendous gulf hast thou escaped! that would have buried both thee and him in endless ruin. Providence, indeed, has here been kinder to us than we to ourselves. It has reserved that son to be the father and protector of my children when I shall be away. How unjustly did I complain of being stripped of every comfort, when still I hear that he is happy and insensible of our afflictions, still kept in reserve to support his widowed mother and to protect his brothers and sisters. But what sisters has he left? He has no sisters now. They are all gone, robbed from me, and I am undone. Father, interrupted my son, I beg you will give me leave to read his letter. I know it will please you. Upon which, with my permission, he read as follows. Honoured sir, I have called off my imagination a few moments from the pleasures that surround me to fix it upon objects that are still more pleasing, the dear little fireside at home. My fancy draws that harmless group as listening to every line of this with great composure. I view those faces with delight which never felt the deforming hand of ambition or distress. But whatever your happiness may be at home, I am sure it will be some addition to it, to hear that I am perfectly pleased with my situation, and every way happy here. Our regiment is countermanded and is not to leave the kingdom. The colonel, who professes himself my friend, takes me with him to all companies where he is acquainted, and after my first visit I generally find myself received with increased respect upon repeating it. I danced last night with Lady G, and could I forget you know whom, I might be perhaps successful. But it is my fate still to remember others, while I am myself forgotten by most of my absent friends, and in this number I fear, sir, that I must consider you, for I have long expected the pleasure of a letter from home to no purpose. Olivia and Sophia promised to write, but seem to have forgotten me. Tell them they are two arrant little baggages, and that I am this moment in a most violent passion with them. 
Yet still I know not how, though I want to bluster a little, my heart is respondent only to softer emotions. Then tell them, sir, that after all I love them affectionately, and be assured of my ever-remaining, your dutiful son. In all our miseries, cried I, what thanks have we not to return that one at least of our family is exempted from what we suffer? Heaven be his guard, and keep my boy thus happy to be the supporter of his widowed mother, and the father of these two babes, which is all the patrimony I can now bequeath him. May he keep their innocence from the temptations of want, and be their conductor in the paths of honour. I had scarce said these words when a noise like that of a tumult seemed to proceed from the prison below. It died away soon after, and a clanking of fetters was heard along the passage that led to my apartment. The keeper of the prison entered, holding a man all bloody, wounded, and fettered with the heaviest irons. I looked with compassion on the wretch as he approached me, but with horror when I found it was my own son, my George, my George, and do I find thee thus, wounded, fettered? Is this thy happiness? Is this the manner you return to me? Oh, that this sight could break my heart at once, and let me die! Where, sir, is your fortitude? returned my son with an intrepid voice. I must suffer. My life is forfeited, and let them take it. I tried to restrain my passions for a few minutes in silence, but I thought I should have died with the effort. Oh, my boy, my heart weeps to behold thee thus, and I cannot, cannot help it. In the moment that I thought thee blessed, and prayed for thy safety, to behold thee thus again, chained, wounded, and yet the death of the youthful is happy. But I am old, a very old man, and have lived to see this day, to see my children all untimely falling about me, while I continue a wretched survivor in the midst of ruin. May all the curses that ever sunk a soul fall heavy upon the murderer of my children. May he live, like me, to see— Hold, sir, replied my son, or I shall blush for thee. How, sir, forgetful of your age, your holy calling, thus to arrogate the justice of heaven— and fling those curses upward that must soon descend to crush thy own grey head with destruction? No, sir, let it be your care now to fit me for that vile death I must shortly suffer, to arm me with hope and resolution, to give me courage to drink of that bitterness which must shortly be my portion. My child, you must not die. I am sure no offence of thine can deserve so vile a punishment. My George could never be guilty of any crime to make his ancestors ashamed of him. Mine, sir, returned my son, is, I fear, an unpardonable one. When I received my mother's letter from home, I immediately came down, determined to punish the betrayer of our honour, and sent him an order to meet me, which he answered, not in person, but by his dispatching four of his domestics to seize me. I wounded one who first assaulted me, and I fear desperately, but the rest made me their prisoner. The coward is determined to put the law in execution against me. The proofs are undeniable. I have sent a challenge, and as I am the first transgressor upon the statute, I see no hopes of pardon. But you have often charmed me with your lessons of fortitude. Let me now, sir, find them in your example. And, my son, you shall find them. I am now raised above this world and all the pleasures it can produce. From this moment I break from my heart all the ties that held it down to earth, and will prepare to fit us both for eternity. Yes, my son, I will point out the way, and my soul shall guide yours in the ascent, for we will take our flight together. 
I now see and am convinced you can expect no pardon here, and I can only exhort you to seek it at that greatest tribunal, where we both shall shortly answer. But let us not be niggardly in our exhortation, but let all our fellow prisoners have a share. Good jailer, let them be permitted to stand here while I attempt to improve them. Thus saying, I made an effort to rise from my straw, but wanted strength, and was able only to recline against the wall. The prisoners assembled according to my direction, for they loved to hear my counsel. My son and his mother supported me on either side. I looked and saw that none were wanting, and then addressed them with the following exhortation. End of chapter